Sister Judy gave away the title of the sermon this morning. <clears throat> I'm glad. It, it always reminds me that God's the one planning the services because many times, the almost 100% of the time, the songs match what the sermon's about, the other people's comments fit right into it and so forth. So the title this morning is Feeding the Whole Person on Easter. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and guidance as we study your word. We know that only by your Holy Spirit can we actually understand and apply it to our lives in a manner that, that edifies us and glorifies you. We ask that you'd raise us up to be the men and women of God you called us to be in Jesus' name. <clears throat> First Thessalonians 5.23, the Apostle Paul is talking, and he says, And the very God of peace sanctify, or make you holy, Sanctify you wholly means completely. This, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> See, one of the things we learn in the Bible is that every human consists of those three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And we kind of have a hard time to distinguishing between soul and spirit. They both kind of look the same to us. They can't see either one. Uh, invisible looks an awful lot like invisible. Uh, but God knows the difference, and, and in Hebrews it says that he's able to discern between the soul and the spirit. Okay, I kind of have a hard time with that. I can see pretty much what the scripture teaches about it, but honestly, I confuse the two pretty easily. <clears throat> but the fact is, when we go to nourish the whole person, it means I need to nourish the body and the soul and the spirit. Well, this morning we got nourished downstairs, had a pretty nice breakfast together. Uh, if you were fellowshipping around the person of Christ together, then maybe you nourish your soul and your spirit while you're at it. Maybe not. Maybe you're, you know, talking fishing or vacations or whatever. We do that. We're people. We talk about the things in our lives. There's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> but God knows the difference. Part of the confusion comes because the world tells us, follow your heart. Well, Scripture says the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. I'm not to trust it. And it kind of links that heart to the soul. Over in James it says that there's other sources of wisdom than God, and that those other sources are not trustworthy. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you. Let him show out of a good, King James says conversation, it means way of life, out of a good way of life, his works with meekness of wisdom. <clears throat> but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are our three enemies. And those three enemies can bring, quote, wisdom, too. Or, you know, we, we frequently say, well, the conventional wisdom is, which means that's what everybody says, okay? That may make it right or might make it wrong. It just depends on which way the conventional wisdom's going, okay? But the word translated sensual there is the Greek word sukikos, the the... The Greek word for the soul is suke, which is where we get our word psyche and, the, and our psychological studies and so forth have to do with the soul. 
So when it says that this wisdom is soulish, it means it's coming from our psyche. It's coming from ourselves. It's coming from our hearts. It's not necessarily trustworthy. And we're easily deceived by our own souls, even as believers. I've heard people say things like, eat chocolate, it's good for the soul. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I can buy into that one. You know, well, what do they really mean? I mean, it makes you feel good about life. Okay, it acts as kind of a natural antidepressant. Does, does that mean it's literally good for the soul the way God's talking? No, I, it's not going to hurt it. I mean, go ahead, have some chocolate, give me some. You know, but but the fact is, no, it has nothing to do with nourishing your soul from God's perspective. All it means is it makes you feel good. When I had open-heart surgery a number of years ago, the doctors gave me oxycodone. Well, guess what? That made me feel really good. In fact, we got home from the hospital the very first day. We are at Ann's mom and dad's house, and I was doing jumping jacks in their living room. And he was yelling at me, knock it off. And I said, I feel great. He says, yeah, it's the drugs making you feel good. You're not supposed to be doing that. And he was right. I got to the end of that. It's amazing. The oxycodone has, I think, I don't remember, it was a four-hour or six-hour cycle, whatever it was. But, I mean, it was like you could set your clock by it. And when it got to the end of that medicine cycle, I didn't feel good anymore. You know, why? Because it was a deceptive thing. It was this drug that was making me feel good. And we need to be aware of that kind of thing. We're aware we need to feed our bodies. When we get hungry, we, we don't start thinking, I think I need to go to a circus and take a ride on a merry-go-round. No, I'm hungry. I need to feed my stomach. Okay. And... There are ways you can fool that, too. Uh, there's probably several, but at least one tribe in the Amazon jungle, the Yanoamo people, who it was perfectly normal for them if they're having to make a long hike through the jungle. They took this little, uh, we'd call it a fanny pack, but it's just their little pouch that they carried, and it would be stuffed full of these green leaves that they'd chew while they're on the hike, and they'd feel better. They could go for long periods without food or water or rest. Well, you and I both know what those green leaves were. It was coca leaves. It was a fairly minor, mild dose of cocaine they were getting, but that's what they were doing. And they knew they needed food and water and rest, but they also knew they felt better if they chewed those green leaves. Made their teeth turn green, too, but hey, that didn't bother them. They didn't have mirrors. Uh, they, they felt better, and they got further. They, they had more energy. You know, well, yeah, but... They were fooling their body. Okay. What they were doing is getting a mild dose of cocaine. So we tend to make, try to make healthy decisions regarding food as best we can uh, in varying degrees. There's some people that are simply thinking food groups. You know, when I think, think food groups, I'm thinking, let's see, sugar, fat, flavor, and salt. Yeah, got it. <clears throat> no, that's not what they want. Okay, but there's other people that, uh, if you're not a trained dietitian, you got no idea what they're doing when they're setting out a meal. And you think, what are you doing? Well, they're arranging it from their perspective a very healthy meal. And there's other people that are thinking basic food groups and are trying to put together a healthy meal. And there's other people like me that joke about it, you know. But there's other people that whenever they're hungry, they just eat whatever they want. And you know, we all manage to live. Uh, it's not necessarily a killer thing to eat an unhealthy diet, and it's not necessarily guaranteeing you're going to live forever if you eat a really healthy diet. However, wisdom says eat a healthy diet. Nourish your body correctly, right? Well, what about your soul? <clears throat> See, when we got to go to feed the soul, honest, it's not chocolate. No, that won't do it. 
Okay. This morning we started off with a reasonably healthy breakfast downstairs. Some people would say, well, that wasn't very healthy. You had a lot of sugar and a lot of fat. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? We eat that once a year. It was a special thing. I don't begrudge somebody having an ice cream Sunday after dinner. I, if, they ate, if that's all they ate, that'd be pretty unhealthy. But for dessert, I don't care. Go ahead. It's not hurting them. There's some moderation involved there. But when we go to feed the soul, you see, our souls look for peace and happiness and feelings of fulfillment. Okay, Which, to some people, the chocolate makes them feel that way. We, we, we call it uh, emotional eating or... Uh, comfort foods, things like that. You know, for a lot of us, is bacon. Uh, for pigs, it's not. But that's because they're the ones providing the bacon. That's a little bit different story. But that feeling is what we're kind of after. That's why that oxycodone was so successful. You know, instead of having this horrible pain where I felt like I couldn't breathe, I felt good. Yeah, well, I also probably didn't care about anything. You know, I'd probably stand out in front of traffic and feel good about getting run over. I, it was not good. It made me feel good, but it was a deceptive thing. So we want to think about that when we're going and feeding the soul. Some people feed their souls on drama. You know, they, they watch a tearjerker movie and they find it a catharsis for them to just cry their eyes out. And some people like that. Some people feel like, okay, I can't handle this. I, I, I'm going to go watch something else. Okay. Other people want, a, they want an adrenaline rush, you know, so they'll either take big risks themselves or like to watch videos of other people that do and think, oh, my goodness, oh, wow. You know, well, okay, but if that's, you know, if that's what gives you that adrenaline rush and makes you feel good about life, that's, that's fine. It's not necessarily hurting anything. Some people take it to a different direction and they do find their drama in gossiping about other people, making other people feel bad, that makes them feel good. If they can make another person feel small, it makes them feel big. Okay, that's not good. That's real unhealthy. But it is doing it for the same thing. Our soul, our, our sin nature desires power and desires drama. So we find that satisfaction. It can be a good kind of satisfaction. Some of you are builders and you find satisfaction in your work because I built that. Some of your uh, seamstresses and so forth and can show a quilt that you've made or, or some other thing and be pleased with your own handiwork. It's not a matter of pride, it's a matter of satisfaction that God's given you something to do, you did it well and you're satisfied with it. That's a good kind of feeding the soul. Can we have unhealthy food for the soul in church? Yeah, it's possible. There's churches where, you know, the biggest thing is the drama and the thrill and the uh, sensationalism. I, I don't think that's a healthy way to feed a soul. Uh, could there be a testimony that just really stirred your heart, made you feel how important it is to know the Savior? Yeah, and that's a good, healthy way to feed the soul. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem with emotional drama of all sorts is that we can mistake it for spiritual food. And that we get a charge when we're at church and then go home and feel like we need recharged. Then we're not getting our spirit fed. And that's what we need to really talk about this morning. I'm not there yet, but the, the thing is, is some of these thrillsome things that we read about, even in the Bible, didn't come from God. 
He says so. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, he was talking about the false prophets that Jeremiah was dealing with. He says, yeah, they're having dreams and visions. They cause them themselves. Yeah, I, I got a friend who is kind of scared of the dark. Why? Because she spent her whole life reading horror movies, watching horror movies and reading scary books. And my daughter was telling me she's got friends the same way. They watch those kind of movies, read those kind of books. They can't sleep with the light off. They're afraid to turn the lights off. Okay? They did it to themselves. And these false prophets were so wrapped up in wanting to you know, see the bad guys go away. They were under siege at the time. Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem. And they were so wrapped up in that that they were having visions of him going away. And that's what they were preaching. And God says they caused those dreams themselves. That didn't come from him. So it's possible for us to get a wrong turn by listening to our hearts. <clears throat> and we've all read sensational books and seen movies about Jesus. They had one a few years ago. It's called The Passion of the Christ. Is that the right name? And everybody at work was telling me, you've got to see this, Jay. You've got to see this. Well, the more they told me, the more I thought... I don't think I'd better. You see, I've suffered from depression since I was 15. And I'm covered with Jesus' blood. I don't need to have my nose rubbed in it. It would destroy me to watch him getting beaten to death and tortured. And, and to a lot of people, that was just the ultimate thrill for them, especially as a believer. And, but they, everybody kept telling me, you've got to go see it. Well, I asked Stephanie, and she says she saw the movie. She says, Dad, you do not need to see that movie. That would not be a good choice for you. And I thanked her because I knew that while it might be emotional food for some people and really move them closer to God, for me it would just grind me into a, a sea of depression that I couldn't even pull out of. After that, I, for about three years, I was on an antidepressant. It gave me enough of a break that I managed to learn to deal with life without it. So for the last 22 years, I haven't had any, 23 years I guess, I haven't had any antidepressants. And most of the time, I'm okay. I still have to be very careful. So what's good for one person might not be good for everybody. <clears throat> if all we want is the emotional drama, then in the long run, we're not better off than the people watching the sad movies and stuff. Because that's not where it's at. Okay. I am covered with the blood of Jesus. I don't need to continually have my nose rubbed in it. I remember his sacrifice. I am absolutely overwhelmed that he chose to die for me. I don't understand that. I, I'm not worthy of that. You understand exactly what I'm saying. I don't see myself as someone that would even be attractive to God. See, But for some reason, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm grateful for that whosoever in there because it means that I'm included. Okay. See, I don't have to understand it. I don't even have to feel it. People think they have to like emotionally feel what happened at Gethsemane. No, you don't. If you do, that's fine. I mean, but you don't have to. He says all you have to do is choose to believe it by faith. That Jesus' blood at the cross really did pay for all of your sins, past, present, and future. In fact, come to think of it, you know, every one of the sins you're ever going to commit was future when he died. So don't get the idea that somehow he died for the ones before you were saved, but after this you're on your own. No, all of them were at the cross. All of them were under the blood. Okay. 
See, we're starting to edge over into feet of the Spirit now. We're talking about the realities of my relationship with Christ, our relationship with Him. <clears throat> All He's asked us to do is to believe it, to choose to believe it by faith, to receive His gift of eternal life. And my soul will be fed as I walk with Jesus. I will experience the reasonable, valid emotions just as He did. I'll be sad when people are hurting. I'll be joyous when people are healed. I'll be joyous when people are saved, when somebody's born again that was headed for hell. That It'll overwhelm me with joy that God reached out to them as well. There's no false drama there. There's no self-induced emotional highs or, or emotional lows. But so the one we probably need to ask then, how do we feed the Spirit? <clears throat> When each of you place your faith individually and personally in Jesus' shed blood at the cross as full payment for your sins, you are born again as children of the living God. Now that word has been bandied around, especially in political circles and stuff, until born again, it, it's, it almost doesn't mean anything in our society. I mean, John Denver said he was born again in the the splendor of the Denver, uh, you know, the mountains, sun, sunrise or something. I think, oh my goodness, that has nothing to do with being born again. It means literally being born God's child, that he's literally your father, that he sees you as his offspring. You're not somebody he just dragged in off the street and told him to keep clean until dinner time. No, you're his child, okay? <clears throat> but he says, as his newborn babies. You need to deliver, d develop an appetite. In 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. I'm reading from the King James. Others say some things that kind of miss the point. The, the thing that baby Christians feed on is God's word. We look at that in the Psalms, and he says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In another place, it says that you know, thy word is a lighting of my path and a lamp unto my feet. And Jeremiah says, I, my, uh, thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. We're supposed to be feeding on God's word. And in First Timothy, First Peter 2, 2 there says, as newborn babes, we're supposed to have an appetite for that. My, my neighbor's got a little baby goat, really cute. But you know what? Right from birth, they knew mama's milk is what they needed. You didn't have to go tell them, hey, better go get some food now. No, they were right on it. Okay, As a newborn babe, you're to feed on God's word and to have a hunger for God's word. He says, desire the sincere milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. So what part of us does God's word primarily feed? Well, it primarily feeds the spirit. <clears throat> We're born again with a new nature, and our spirits are alive to God. They're hungry for his presence. We want to know him. I don't want to just know about him. I want to know him. I want to know that he's with me. I want to be conscious of his presence when I'm going someplace by myself. <clears throat> Can the word also feed the soul? Absolutely. We can feel joy and satisfaction and peace and so forth from reading God's word. <clears throat> We're thrilled by the exquisite joy of seeing God at work. We're grieved at the hardness of the hearts of humanity. 
we're fearful of the judgment of God and we desire to be freed from our sins, freed from our guilt, and all of this feeds the soul because we do experience valid emotional shifts through that. We can see the, the grief of the world around us so we can see the joy of seeing God's hand in people's lives. But we feed our spirits by taking in God's word. When we consider the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, we need to apply our attention to what God actually says about it, not just how we feel about it. There's a lot of attention given to how we feel about it. People sensationalize everything about the scripture if they can. It excites the soul, but it leaves the spirit unnourished. We need to see what does God actually say about it. So what does the scripture say about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus? Because that's what we're here for for today, to feed the spirit. To begin with, it says the entire human race fell into sin with Adam. He was our representative's He acted on my behalf. I may not like the results, but he acted on my behalf. I became a sinner the same day he did. I was born that way. If you don't like it, go read the scripture. That's what it says. Okay. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 5, 12 says where it came from. He says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all, for all have sinned. It fits. And then it says the result of sin is death. First half of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin, payoff of sin, is death. But the second half of that says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the good news and the bad news. The bad news first. The wages of sin is death. The good news is God's offering eternal life for free through Jesus. It's a free gift of salvation. The King James just says gift of God. Uh, New American Standard says free gift of God. And I, I said that to a woman one time when I was a new believer. In fact, she's the same one that said you're saved by faith but kept by works. But... Uh, she says, no, it doesn't say free gifts. It just says gifts. And I thought, it wouldn't be a gift if it wasn't free. But I opened up my Bible, and I showed her. And she looked at that, and she flips it to see the cover and saw that it was New American Standard. And she says, that's not the Bible. Yeah, it is, folks. Uh, you know, you want to know what version of the Bible to read? Read the one you're willing to read daily and believe completely and obey. If you're willing to apply it to your life, I'm satisfied. Grab that one and go. So, yeah, I teach from the King James, so that doesn't mean you've got to read it from that. It also says that God reached out in love to save the whole human race. He said he offered a free gift of salvation to anyone who trusts in him. That's the second half of Romans 6.23. And the gift is offered in the person of his son. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Period. It's that simple. Black and white. I didn't have it in my notes, but verse 13 says, These things I have written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope. You don't have to wait and see. You don't have to wait till you die to find out if you made the team. You can know now that you have eternal life. If you doubt that, we can talk after service. 
he says that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies and that he came specifically to do that. In Luke chapter 24, when he was talking with the, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when they didn't even know who he was, he said, this is, this is what the Christ came to do. He says, isn't it fitting that he should do what he came to do? That's what he was telling them. And then he started them over. He started clear back at Genesis. And he says he taught them through the Old Testament, everything that it said about him. Which, by the way, is what we're doing Wednesday nights. If you're missing out on that, that's your choice. We're up to numbers now. I don't know how many years we've been working on the Old Testament, but that's how far we've gotten. He also says that the good news of the gospel of salvation is of first importance, and that it consists of the following truths. If you want to turn to something, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. This is a good place to spend some time thinking and maybe memorize this, these two verses because this is the gospel in its simplest form. <clears throat> first Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, and by the way, that in the Greek it means as of first importance, the most important thing. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, which means to fulfill the prophecies in, in accordance with those scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was fulfilling prophecy. And he goes on to say all the people that saw him. But that, that little core issue there, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, is the gospel. That's the core issues of the gospel. <clears throat> we understand that that he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried in fulfillment of the scriptures. That was in Isaiah 53. And then he rose again the third day also to, to fulfill scripture. Those are the core issues. And the, the problem with that is we kind of overlook it and we think, well, we start talking about all the other things that we surround Christianity with. <clears throat> but what Paul says about that issue right there. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And there is nothing else in the scripture that's identified that way. It's the only way that God has ever saved anybody in the history of the universe. Through the gospel. Through believing God. Abraham believed God and was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And we see that all the way through the scripture People chose to take God at his word, and God imputed his righteousness to them. By the way, that's the, that's the righteousness it's talking about in Ephesians 6 when it says to take the righteous, excuse me, the breastplate of righteousness, not your own righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that's been added to you by God. Okay. You're starting to wonder why we're doing this on Easter. So we understand the death of the Savior, that it had to happen. Or we'd still be in our sins. We'd still be unforgiven. We hopelessly lost. And we see, too, the burial at least gave evidence that he was really dead, that he didn't, wasn't playing possum, he wasn't faking it, he wasn't fainted or anything, that he was genuinely dead. By the way, when the Romans stuck a big spear through your side, they knew you were dead. You know, when he talked to Thomas, he didn't say, see the little dent in my side. He says, shove your hand in the hole in my side and believe. Yeah, he was dead. <clears throat> he spent those three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth. He doesn't stay in the grave. His body was in the grave, but he wasn't. It says he was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, fulfilling his own word. In Matthew chapter 12, he had told him that's what he was going to do. So, but what about the resurrection? See, that's what we're here about today. This is what the Apostle Paul says about the resurrection. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ is not raised, if he's not resurrected, if he's not alive today, then your faith is vain. It's empty, it's useless, it's hopeless. He says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. <clears throat> you are yet in your sins. You're still guilty before God. And they who have fallen asleep in Christ, the dead in Christ, are also lost, perished, it says. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men to be most pitied. King James says we are of all men most miserable. What pitiable wretches we would be if we had placed our faith in a Savior who said that he was coming again, and a Savior who said that his blood had paid for all of our sins, a Savior who said he'd be resurrected on the third day, and if it turned out he never did. Because then the whole thing is false. That's why this is so important. Because it's the keynote for everything else. Judy pointed out this morning, if there wasn't any Easter, then Christmas would be pointless. Why would we care about some kid that was born in a barn? I've known several people that were born in barns. I've known several people that had no idea exactly what day they were born because they were born in a barn and there was nobody there to write down a birth certificate. It got done later. <clears throat> These are facts. The resurrection had to happen too or we'd still be in our sins just as surely as if he'd never died for us. But he's alive. He's risen. That's what Miss Judy said this morning. She said, he's risen. You all said, he's risen indeed. Yeah, that's, a, that's it. That's the whole point. If he weren't, then we got nothing. These are facts. I honestly don't care if you're moved or stirred by this message. I Sure, I'd like you to, to feel good about it, but that's not the point. What's important is that you believe this message, that you choose to place your dependence on Jesus' shed blood of the cross as full payment for your sins, personally. A lot of times I've asked people, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And they say, oh, I believe he died for the sins of the whole world. And I ask, yeah, but do you believe he died for your sins, personally? And they say, well, I believe he died for the sins of the whole world. What are you starting to get a picture of there? They understand the theory, but they've never applied it to their own life. Maybe they don't see themselves as a sinner. Maybe they don't really feel like they understand it. Well, guess what, I don't either. I don't get it. I don't know why Jesus loved me enough to die for me. That doesn't make any sense to me. To me, that'd be like loving a slug on your sidewalk enough to die for it. You know, because honestly, the difference between me and God, between you and God, is bigger than the difference between you and that slug. He's so far above us. Maybe they feel like they don't need a Savior. I don't know. But see, we're not required to understand it all. We are required to accept it by faith, to apply it to our own lives, and to receive that gift of eternal life. It's that simple. That's faith. That's what it's about. <clears throat> so here's a quote I just read this week. It's from an unknown author. I did my best to look up and find out who originally wrote this. I did not succeed. I found a whole bunch of other people that quoted it, but I couldn't find the source. Listen. How does the thief on the cross 
fit into your theology? How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? He had no baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, no church clothes. <clears throat> he couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. Among other things, he was a thief. That's why they were executing him. Jesus didn't take away his pain. Jesus didn't heal his body. Jesus didn't smite the people that were scoffing. But it was a thief, that particular thief, who entered paradise at the same time as Jesus. Simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. That's it. No spin from some brilliant theologian, no ego, no arrogance, no shiny lights, no smoke machine, no skinny jeans, no crafty words, no donuts, no coffee in the foyer, not even Easter eggs like we got today. Just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. Okay. So where does that all fit in? You see, because he placed his faith in Jesus for who he was, probably not understanding anything that we've talked about this morning, he was the first one in with Jesus. He entered paradise with Jesus. Paradise and heaven are two different places. We'll talk about that later. Until Jesus ascended, nobody else did. That's my point. Okay, but without the resurrection, even that story I just read you would have just added another layer of tragedy to the tragic story of the human race. The resurrection is what makes the difference. The fact that Jesus is alive today, alive now, seated on the throne as your advocate with the Father is what makes it okay. Without the resurrection, we're all completely lost. And the resurrection literally is God the Father's stamp of approval according to Romans chapter 1, showing us that Jesus really was who he said he was and that his death and burial really accomplished all that he intended. And we are resurrected with him by grace through faith to live our lives for God. Okay. So the whole point is that we're to embrace the resurrection in our daily lives and live because he lives and he is risen. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd strengthen us in our faith, that you'd teach us to do your will, that we'd recognize that your resurrection is not just a happy thing to think about, but something that's supposed to affect our whole lives, that the living Christ is supposed to cover our whole lives, that, that you're to be leaking out of the seams in our lives in all directions, that we're to smell like Jesus wherever we go, and that the resurrected Christ is who is living through us. We ask that you'd be able to shine through us in such a way that nobody else can miss it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.